Hello and welcome to another Ranting Soccer Dad. I'm Bo Dewar and this is the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for December 6th, 2017. A mere 66 days before U.S. soccer selects a new president and it will not be Sunil Gulati. We found that out this week. Then we found out that Kathy Carter will be running, uh, we can't really say in his stead, because she denies that that his, that there was a chain reaction here of Gulati dropping out and Carter announcing, but it's pretty hard to ignore the timing, isn't it? I have invited Kathy Carter to be on this podcast, along with all the other candidates that we're trying to plow through, all eight of them now. That's going to be it, right? In fact, actually, by the time we get to NetSuite's podcast, uh, assuming I stay weekly and go December 13th, uh, that'll be one day past the deadline, and I think we're going to lose a couple of candidates. I, I don't want to speculate on whom. Um, I've heard a couple of different things. Um, I mean, Steve Gans has said he has the nominations. Eric Winalda has said he has the nominations. I have no doubt Kathy Carter will get the nominations. That's three. Anyone else? You'd have to think Carlos Cordero would, wouldn't you? I mean, he wouldn't just toss his name out. Oh, bear in mind, I've been told, um, there's no official word of this, but from what I understand, when he won the vice presidency just last year, 2016, you know, 18 to 20 months ago, he won by a considerable margin over an incumbent in Mike Edwards. And an incumbent I've never heard really a bad word about. And Kevin Payne was in that election, too. And Kevin Payne is someone with a lot of power in U.S. soccer. And Carlos Cordero won that election going away. So you'd have to think that he has some support out there. Maybe he and Cordero's... Oh, I forgot that Winalda... Did I mention Winalda? Winalda surely has the nominations. And you know, I think Kyle Martino's going to have the nominations. So that's three people you could consider kind of outsiders. And then two who are kind of on the inside. Uh, my interview subject today... I don't want to say interview subject. That makes it sound like you know, I'm conducting scientific experiments on him or something. Uh, it's Paul LaPointe, who was one of the first people to uh, declare his candidacy, and he was controversially left out of the U.S. club soccer uh, forum last week. Uh, it's, it's funny. I wrote some, I guess you could say, snarky tweets about it when he was left out and said there was just really no excuse for leaving him out. I got a phone call <laughs> from someone with U.S. club soccer who kind of set me straight, and I understood his points, but the more I think about it, no, I'm sorry. U.S. club soccer, you blew it. You don't come off well looking from what happened there. You don't come off well saying that, you know, oh, well, he wrote us, but it was only a form letter and so forth. No, if you want to say that, you know, I've read Paula Point's tweets and words are misspelled and so forth, and so I don't think he should be president, you know, okay, at least that's a point. I would still disagree with that, but at least it's it doesn't look like someone, you're making someone genuflect to come in and, and speak at your precious forum uh, for your whatever percentage of votes that you have. And look, I think U.S. club soccer is on the defensive here. We talk about it in this podcast, but um, I don't mean to maintain an adversarial relationship with U.S. club soccer. I, I will say again and again, they've done a lot of good. There certainly is room for them in U.S. youth soccer. They have an interesting partnership with La Liga. And I, I think it's especially interesting because that really takes soccer in a different direction. Soccer in the U.S. has been dominated by the English influence first and then the Latin American influence second. Uh, these days you could probably switch that and say it's primarily Latin American and then English second. Maybe the English um, influence has faded a bit, but it was a lot of, I mean, there were a lot of English people uh, sort of pushing their way over here. And there still are, because for one thing, you can get paid as a coach over here. You know, the pay to play system is great if you're an English coach, because in England, it's hard to make that kind of money. You can come over here, run a soccer club that never produces a professional player, and 
make a good living. That seems rather difficult to do in England, uh, from from what I understand. I mean, and again, it's something I could certainly stand to research further, and I hope some people have. And <laughs> a majority of the NWSL uh, coaches last year were English. I would say Parsons, Harvey, Beard, Holly, Riley. Yeah, that's five off the top of my head. Uh, so there's still an English influence here. Anyway, the point is, U.S. club soccer has gone with La Liga. They're going for the Spanish influence, and that's great. And U.S. club soccer a while ago came out with standards, you know, club standards, and they were issuing, you know, sort of saying, you know, okay, this club is a level such and such. This club is a level such and such. That's great. There are There's so much room for something like that, to have that coaching methodology. There's no reason every U.S. club should be using the same coaching methodology. There's certainly no reason every U.S. club should be using an English methodology. That's for sure. I don't even think England uses an English methodology anymore. They seem to be doing a lot better on the world stage in youth tournaments. So I think the old stereotype of kick and run is gone. Um, Or maybe it's really working at the youth level. Who knows? So, again, there's a place for U.S. club soccer. I think the U.S. club soccer competitions are ridiculous. I'm watching my local club now as they go into their second state state cup competition of the fall so they can make their second regional competition. And then maybe have, maybe these teams will be in two national championships. That's, it, it is absurd. There's no defense for it. There just isn't. I don't think there's a defense for keeping the development academy, which we talk about a little bit in this in this interview as well. I don't think there's much reason to have that as a, as its own separate league either, and I've talked about that before. I think you have clubs that earn the development academy label. You set a standard for them, and that becomes something you can advertise. Okay, these clubs are development academy clubs. If you want to have a development academy showcase in December at Disney World or uh, Carson, California, or wherever you want, fine. Don't call it a national championship. Let's have one national championship for youth teams. Just one, not five. Come on. That's a ridiculous waste of money to have that many teams traveling because they need to, because they need to be as part of a national tournament. Don't do that. I think we can stop that pretty soon. Anyway, the Sunil Gulati is out. And I spent a lot of yesterday looking at his Twitter mentions because there was a specific allegation in one of the stories. I forget if it was Sam Borden's story or Jeff Carlisle's story. A specific allegation that he dealt had some racist abuse uh, on Twitter. I looked through hundreds and hundreds of mentions. I, I only found three things that were specifically racist, but you know what? There was an awful lot of abuse in there and just reminded me, Twitter... Twitter needs to get over itself, or people on Twitter need to get over themselves. It has really become a medium for people who just have a lot of anger and want to vent it at other people to feel powerful in 140 to 280 character bursts because they can't be bothered to write a coherent email. It is a terrible, terrible medium. I'd love to find a replacement for it. I don't think I don't think I can get off of Twitter. And actually, there are things you can do to control Twitter. You can block people. You can mute people. And let's say this. Sunil Gulati does not deserve your abuse. Sunil Gulati has been perhaps a bit too autocratic. I think he's a bit tone deaf right now. I think it's a good decision for him to step aside. And Steve Goff said that a long time ago. And Steve Goff was always thought to be you know, kind of his pal. I mean, certainly there are people, well, there are people who think that everyone in the mainstream soccer media, whatever that might be, uh, are all Sunil's pals or whatever. I don't really see that for the most part. So it's, Twitter just lends itself to stereotypes and they're pretty ugly. And the fact is you have to give Sunil Gulati an awful lot of credit for what's going on in U.S. soccer uh, under his watch. He's been president for close to 12 years now and vice president for six years before that. And look, 
before he was vice president, before he was that involved, U.S. soccer was in debt. Well, not, or they were running a deficit, I'll put it that way. They were, they were in red ink. Now, you could say it's all coincidence that U.S. soccer is on better footing in Galati's term. It's not entirely coincidence. I mean, he has managed things very well. He has brought in tons of sponsorship money. He has brought in, uh, he, he has helped stabilize Major League Soccer. And that's not something you can sneeze at. It's not something we can take for granted. A lot of people do. A lot of people just take for granted that, oh, well, of course there would be a stable Major uh, Soccer League in the U.S. at this point. You have no idea. You, you just don't. And I, I can't regurgitate the entire history for you in this podcast. Um, but you need to give Sunil Gulati some credit. By all means, you can say he's been heavy-handed. He was heavy-handed, frankly, when he was in MLS as well, 20 years ago. And that came out in the lawsuit. And uh, the, the lawsuit, I mean, it's one of those things where if you wonder why U.S. soccer is trying to settle the NASL, well, I think... I think you always try to settle a lawsuit, don't you? You don't want to just keep it going forever. But I think that the transcripts of that lawsuit, yeah, there was a time when Jeff Kessler was going after Sunil about uh, whether there were two first divisions in England, and it was absurd. And I don't see how you read that and think, yeah, let's hire Jeff Kessler for another soccer lawsuit. But at the same time, throughout the course of the entire testimony, you know, player after player got up and gave examples of just how mean-spirited Sunil was in those negotiations, which is funny because the the side of him that you usually see is very professional. And this is a sharp guy. People on Twitter think Sunil's an idiot. That is is ridiculous. There are many things you could call Sunil Gulati. An idiot is not one of them. This is a very, very smart man. And he has done a job that has been very difficult. Hopefully it's going to be easier for the next person. But Sunil had to deal with the fact that everyone around him was a crook. Now, hopefully some of those people are gone. Hopefully the people who are in there now are a little less crooked. I don't know. I'm a little bit worried about Russia. A little bit worried about Qatar. Frankly, the next two World Cups, I don't think are going to be great events. They aren't. And people who keep telling, saying, oh, the World Cup is so much bigger than the Olympics right now. uh, No, they are not. Because the Olympics encompasses so many things. It's a big, big tent. um, Plenty of people care about the men's... I've talked with people who care about only the men's 100 meters. There may be people who care only about the women's soccer tournament. And that's a lot of people. Somewhere there are people who care only about weightlifting or care only about canoe kayak. You add it all up. It is a ton of people. The World Cup will have 32 countries. You know, if FIFA gets its way, it'll be 36 or 40 or whatever. The Summer Olympics have 200 some. The Winter Olympics in the 50s, maybe. All of Europe, um, a lot of North America. And then the occasional, uh, a lot of people from uh, South Korea and Japan. South Korea is hosting the next one. Tons of Chinese athletes. Yeah, There are no Chinese athletes in the World Cup. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to move on uh, after this is, I know this has been an extended rant to start things. I guess I'll kind of go to the even 15 minute mark to bring in Paul LaPointe. And I'm going to say once again, I think the field of candidates this year is exceptional. And Paul on Twitter sometimes comes across I don't know, a little bit abrupt, or um, I'm not sure he has a spell checker on his Twitter. But when you listen to him, you're going to hear a very thoughtful guy with some good ideas. And whatever happens in this election, and I don't know if he's going to survive past next week or not, whatever happens, I'm glad he ran, along with all these other people. So here he is, Paul LaPointe.
Here now with Paul LaPointe, and you were one of the early candidates for this election. You entered well before the apocalypse in Trinidad. Um, what was your motivation, and what made you decide, me, I'm the one who has the answers? Great question. Um, answered it many a times. I've uh, been in the game 47 years. Uh, pretty much accomplished uh, all levels um, of soccer in this country from from a youth player all the way up to a team owner and uh, college coach, professional coach, club coach, ODP coach, business ownership, uh, stadium management. Um, so, you know, when soccer burns in your heart and it's it's uh, passion, um, you what left is there to do. And and um, you know, when the good Lord made the eleventh commandment uh, for me, He said, uh, "Never walk away from soccer." And at a, uh, a young 54, um, I want to help make soccer better in this country. So when the uh, the floodgate opened uh, uh, for this process uh, to usher in possibly a new uh, new presidency and a new uh, uh, new gentleman or woman at the helm, uh, I jumped in the race, and uh, we got a lot of work to do. And now I want to introduce you a bit without regurgitating interviews you've already done. So mm-hmm. I'll ask you this. Uh, you, you played lower division yeah. outdoor soccer, US, USISL at the time, right? Um, USISL uh, back in the uh, middle 90s. Um, okay. And and then graduated uh, to team ownership and uh, then played in the American Indoor Soccer League, which I founded uh, to bring a second-tier system under the major indoor soccer league at the time. Um, right. And then um, came off the pitch, and um, as far as – a legitimate professional player uh, in, in, in inside balls with walls. Uh, but before all of that, in the outdoor ranks, um, I had stints with the Albany Capitals way back in the day and, and uh, mm-hmm. in the lower semi-professional ranks as well. So I have a variety of both outdoor and indoor. So which was more fun to play, outdoor or indoor? Uh, great question, and I've never been asked that. Uh, you know what? <laughs> Balls with walls is very controversial when it comes to the technical training of a player and, 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 and how it prepares you for outdoor. Um, so indoor soccer, in my mind, is is um, is twice as exciting uh, for the fan from an uh, from an entertainment standpoint. But um, with the speed and the technical ability of the of the the new breed and culture of these soccer players coming out outdoor. Um, um, is is absolutely amazing now uh, with the athleticism of of, uh, of some of the athletes. So, uh, but indoor is very fun, and you know my roots and passion also goes into those futsal ranks as well. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but outdoor, you know, hey, that's the beautiful game. Um, uh, but indoor is certainly exciting, and I was glad I was a part of um, uh, the system for for a good fifteen years. Now, you currently manage the Northeast Conference of the UPSL, uh, the United Premier Soccer League, right? Uh, which actually mm-hmm. puts you in a good position to see all sorts of issues in adult and amateur soccer, along with promotion and relegation. Can you tell mm-hmm. me what the UPSL does differently? And Is there a reason that a club that has played at an elite amateur level for generations in a league that has been doing promotion and relegation for a long time – is there a reason that club should switch to the UPSL, or are you more interested in bringing new clubs to the fore? Well, you know, the UPSL has a great recipe at this point, and that recipe is, um, you know, giving some breathing room to uh, to soccer team owners that want to aspire to a higher level past their state or region uh, and, and be a part of something that is uh, user-friendly and cost-effective. Uh, so... You know, on the on the pro real term, I mean, you know, that's been a big topic. Um, you know, pro real in this country, uh, we don't even have a defined program or a defined system. We use this term pro real as if we've been dealing with it for 30 years. Um, you know, in, until a, pro, a proposal is put forth and it's defined properly, uh, you know, w- with this system, it's it's tough to even talk about it. But the UPSL is, you know, has pro rel in 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 some of its divisions, um, but to actually knock on Major League Soccer, NASL, or USL uh, top tier, uh, enforce it is going to be tough. But um, like I've said before, the UPSL, PDL, NPSL, um, 
you know, we, we have to uh, we have to put this in place at those ranks first, work out the kinks, and then move forward. Right, and so that that leads to a, a more general role about the a general question about the role of the president. And of course, there are some people. You know, we you're active on Twitter as I am, and there are some people who seem mm-hmm. to think that once Gulati's gone, then someone can come in and magically impose promotion relegation, among other things. And mm-hmm. um, but in more reasonable uh, terms, you've advocated for the presidency to be a full time role. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some other candidates and some others outside the race who've suggested going the other direction. They say that Sunil was too directly involved, and they want the president to back off a bit and right. serve the way a lot of board presidents serve, which is just letting the CEO and the rest of the staff handle things. What would be your response to that suggestion? Well, let's address what you just talked about, and that's too involved on Gulati. But um, what was he too involved with? Um, and what was his motivation to have that much concentration and that involvement? Um, we've concentrated right. on the on the money trail of this sport for the past 15 years rather than the development process of it uh, from the uh, U3-year-old all the way up to a national team level. So let's question that first. Number two, part-time president gives part-time results. Now, I've been a business owner uh, since I've been 26 years old, running in my companies, and um, as a CEO and a president of a company um, that delivers products uh, and services on the behalf of profit or even nonprofit, I think has to be engaged daily to make sure that the staff that's in place, whether it's voted on or not, uh, to put those people in place, it's still a company. Um, I think that it's very important the president be engaged so we head off uh, problems uh, before they happen, uh, hence all uh, where we're at today with NASL lawsuits actually forcing legal action for the right to play in this country. Um, I, like I said, it's all about the money. It's not about the development because if it was about the development, we wouldn't be suing the heck out of each other uh, just so we can kick a ball. All right, it- and yeah, that is a, a good point that, you know, some people may argue, well, uh, Gulati was too involved on the professional or too involved with hiring the Nets coach mm-hmm. and perhaps not as involved as he should have been in other areas. So that's, that's a very good point. Um, now we've talked a bit before today's interview about women's soccer and, uh, yes. let's start with the national team. Uh, you said you want the base pay to be equal. Now, as we know, it's, a little complicated because the women, by design and what they have asked for, is a salary because you know women's pro soccer doesn't necessarily pay enough. In fact, it doesn't pay enough uh, to to live on, and so the top women's players in this country get they actually do get pay. They get a salary from the U.S. Federation, which of course the men do not. The men is all appearance and bonus based, so. Mm-hmm. How would you equalize things uh, given those two different structures? Well, number one, we, we need access. Uh, we need access to the bank account to define uh, a profit and loss state, statement that's true. And nobody can tear down a P&L better than me owning companies. Um, so we have to look at the existing uh, program. And, you know, some candidates may suggest that we just throw the current CBA agreement in the trash and start from scratch. There's some truth to that. But, um but we, but we need to. I use the word base pay as a generic term because the, um, the intricate part of the salary structures and the incentivized structure for both the men's women's team and the and the women's team is very technical. So we need to we need access to that to see what's been in place. But I don't think it should be so confusing. I think uh, both the men and women should have a base pay. Uh, and then we look at the incentive process outside of the base pay. That equals the playing field. So, it, it, again, it's just like uh, the pro rel terms we use. It's just like uh, uh, the difference between why should a major league soccer team owner that pays a $120 million franchise fee let a guy from Detroit City in the league that didn't pay it. So we need equalization in a lot of things and a lot of sectors in this sport um, we call soccer in this country. And, and but I believe if we just sit down 
and 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 define the pay process for both men and women, starting with the base pay. It equals the playing field, and it rules out uh, conflicts of interest. It rules out um, uh, controversy on whether the president is one way or another way, or even the athletes' commission to vote one way or the other way. And that's my take. Okay. Then on women's club soccer, uh, you've mm-hmm. had a couple of thoughts on that that were posted to a Facebook group a couple of months ago, and that was uh, promotion relegation and a mm-hmm. U.S. Women's Open Cup. And the reaction mm-hmm. to that um, seemed to be, I would say, sort of maybe faints, but we've got other things to worry about. I mean, I think a lot of people pointed out, look, we only have 10 right. clubs that are barely functioning at the professional level. Everyone else is amateur. The Open mm-hmm. Cup technically exists. This I've written about it in the past, but most clubs steer clear. I mean, I am just mad. Did you ever play against Jim Gabara in indoor soccer? Ah, uh, the name is very, very familiar, but um, right. I, I don't recall. But the name's very, very familiar. Right. Of course, he's married to Karen Karen Jennings Gabara, the Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, but he's the coach of the Washington Spirit, and I can he had injuries piling up all through this season. And I can just imagine telling him, uh, okay, Wednesday you're taking your team to go play a, UP, a, a WPSL team um, mm-hmm. on artificial uh, on a 15-year-old artificial turf field. Um, I don't think he'd like that. But but you've stuck with these ideas, promotion relegation in the Open Cup. Is it simply that you want to have that aspiration out there? I, th- I think it's – I think we should offer it um... – as, mm-hmm. as, the, as the same thing uh, we do, no matter the volume of the teams that participate in this country, I think we should offer it as we do the men's. And I come from the standpoint of this, is um, I think it's um, a, a tool that we can use uh, to expose uh, markets uh, to uh, outside investors that look at the women's game Um Look at women's soccer is not broken. I think it just needs to tune up in some new software, and mm-hmm. and um, you know rather than always be on a save the whale campaign, I think maybe we should take some of that surplus along with the U.S. Open Cup idea for women and give those uh, teams in the amateur ranks an opportunity for exposure, uh, and possibly take some of that money and maybe have a little TV deal in some of these markets along with an Open Cup. I get the injury stuff. I get because we have uh, smaller amounts of participation in women that it exposes them possibly to affect their professional uh, success on the grid. Um, But I think we should equally look at whatever we offer the men's side of the game, we should offer the women's as well because at the end of the day, it supports the development process for the very thing that you and I are talking about, and that's feeding the national team program and developing lives and players uh, to be better at what they do. And um, I don't think we should do for one sector and not do for the other. Okay, and uh, another sector that that you've talked about um, almost exclusively, I think, well, it's futsal. And Mm -hmm. a lot of candidates are talking about futsal from a youth development uh, perspective because there are some Mm -hmm. inviting initiatives, the U.S. Soccer Foundation, uh, not Absolutely. federation, but the foundation is involved with and in trying to get futsal courts in inner cities and so forth. And it's exciting, but you've also talked about futsal at the competitive level, and right now it's yes. fragmented. The U.S. soccer sanctions U.S. futsal federation. It's confusing because it's USSF sanctioning the USFF. That's great alphabet soup. Um, yes, it and, is. It, and, of course, they compete in FIFA competitions, but there are separate competitions such as the recent AMF Women's World Cup, which coincidentally was taking place in Catalonia while I was there, but I, I wasn't yes. close. I didn't see any of it. Um, can or should the USSF, that would be U.S. soccer, not U.S. football, president be a leader in bringing everyone under one roof? Um, I will be that leader, and I'm passionate to futsal because I will say this publicly, futsal is the gateway to complete the technical player. And futsal has the same 
battles within its own structure as outdoor soccer, as uh, USSF relation to Major League Soccer, and all these entities. But what you what futsal has is an easier flow chart for players to move abroad under its under its existence. So having said that, US USSF um, uh, and, and and we use all these terms and abbreviations and and things of that. But futsal is near and dear to my heart. And um, we spent $80 million on the men's and women's national team uh, in this country for outdoor soccer. We spent 225000 on futsal. And yet we don't really sanction the sport here. Um, so, and do we really even know about our futsal men's national team, what they do, where they go? Um, so, hey, I, I, think we should, I think we should insert some of these funds and support futsal because at the end of the day, uh, when we talk about kids playing in inner city, YMCA, boys and girls clubs, uh, I think futsal can support uh, a lot of the things that I talk about, uh, giving kids an opportunity just to touch a ball on a grid that they don't have to pay for. So, you know, futsal is 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 bigger than what people think it is. And um, uh, I've met with um, folks that are connected with the AMF and um, – you know their mindset is incredible, uh, but we need inclusion, and um, and that's the very thing that uh, this federation has lacked on all sectors is inclusion and transparency about things. And uh, futsal has got to be included, um, or we will never qualify past our uh, our bracket. And then the indoor game or the balls and walls game, which you've mentioned yeah. is controversial, and and <laughs> which I've played. For fun, although we got, I was in promotion relegation league and we got promoted against our will to the upper division. I spent most of my time picking the ball out of the net. Uh, mm-hmm. but the, the MASL, which is, has the Baltimore Blast and San Diego Soccers and, uh, yeah. all these, and these old brand names and new ones, uh, mm-hmm. they're outside the FIFA structure and the U.S. soccer right now. In fact, they were affiliated more great alphabet soup. For a while, there's a group called FIFRA, F-I-F-R-A. <laughs> which was the Football Rapido Association. Yeah, and I, yes, they, it's, still, yeah it's still there. Well, they, they've become the World Mini Football Federation, it appears. Correct. Um, Correct. And um, so what role would you want to – in the past, the I mean, you mentioned the MISL before, mm-hmm. and at one time they were affiliated with U.S. soccer. They um, were, and, and, I, yeah. and, and I, t- I tell you, um, having major roots there, I mean, I was part of the – uh, MISL uh, 2, I, my team was in the NISL when all those team owners were fighting uh, for rights. And, right. and, and you know, let's, let's face it, indoor soccer has struggled with continuity uh, and inclusion as well. And, um, yes, at one point, um, uh, the MISL was affiliated with U.S. soccer, but the fees associated, the fees associated with it, uh, really didn't look at, uh, you know, the, the, some of those owners in the league ownership looked at the benefits thereof. So it's it's a matter of are we getting what we're paying for? Uh, just so we can have a player registered within FIFA, FIFA does that make, uh, you know, worth a, uh, you know, a substantial investment? So, you know, indoor soccer has always kind of stayed on the side, uh, on the outside looking in, but... Uh, there's a place for professional indoor soccer with balls with walls, and we need to include them. Um, so maybe we may, we need to make it a little bit more user-friendly uh, for indoor uh, and look at the uh, the fee structure for an, for an affiliation rather than a sanctioning and, and get them, and get them uh, with inclusion because without indoor, uh, uh, there's no futsal. Without futsal, there's no indoor. So I think those, those two components should work together and, and, and you know, I, I would like to bring those two groups together. Yeah, I think what a lot of people might not realize if they're not uh, my age or your age is that there were people who uh, survived as professionals for many years playing outdoor uh, A-League or US, USISL yeah. in, the, in the summers and then playing indoor in the MISL or the NPSL or whichever, <laughs> as you mentioned, continuity <laughs> was an issue there. Um, right. But they were able to make a year-round living doing that, and perhaps they could do the same with indoor or futsal. Um, well, this is true. Who, yeah. This is true. I mean, back in the late 70s and early 80s, 
when professional outdoor soccer was uh, was very uh, was struggling uh, with the same sub that you and I. Hello, Paul. You know, indoor... Hang on, I, I lost you for a second you know, there. Substantial living. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just saying I lost you for a second there. Uh, we can pick up with substantial living. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, indoor soccer players back in the late seventies, early eighties were making a substantial living uh, with the MISL yeah. because they, they had television rights. I mean, ESPN was covering these things. I mean, they were packing stadiums because there was no option for outdoor. So. You know, hey, indoor with with walls carried the sport for a little bit. Um, you know, d- during its during its time. But again, when I started knocking on the MISL's doors and realized that, uh, you know, we don't want to talk to you unless you can, you know, write a check right now for, uh, you know, almost a, a million dollars just for the right to play. Um, mm-hmm. Then it, it's it's uh, when it was regressing. That's when I, I uh, sat down at my desk and decided to create a second tier for the sport, and uh, you know we enjoyed that as well. But but we have to include indoor soccer. There's no question about it. And so you and I both remember when that be the in fact as recently as I believe it was 2000. I was working at USA Today, and I wrote something about indoor soccer, and I heard from the commissioner of the league at that time who told me, well, MLS just had a nice season, but I really think the future of soccer in the U.S. is indoors. As recently as 2000, mm-hmm. someone mm-hmm. said that. So um, so last but not least, let's talk uh, youth soccer, which yeah. is also fragmented. And um, right. uh, U.S. club soccer recently had a forum, and they claimed that uh, you didn't adequately contact them somehow, and so you weren't invited. Mm-hmm. Um and in any case, they're really flexing their muscles right now. I mean, they, they, you know, that forum was designed essentially to say, hey, tell us what you're going to do for us. Right. Um, do you get the sense that they feel a little bit threatened that a new leadership might come in and say, look, you've got to quit holding your own state cups and national competitions. We can't have, you know, two state cups and four national competitions. We can't have all that. Do you get the sense that they're trying to push back in that sense? Well, I mean, it's a free country here in America, and, um, you know, I want to address the reasons why I didn't go to Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's because I got a a notice the day of that I was supposed to be in Chicago uh, or was invited. Now, I've uh, I've been on this campaign since May, and, uh, you know, I'm on record uh, both uh, in writing and verbally uh, that, you know, I've sent emails out. The board of uh, U.S. Club Soccer knows who I am. They've gotten every email that I've sent to every delegate that votes in this country because they're on the they're on the list, and uh, mm-hmm. they know they know who I am. So why why it happened that way I don't know, but they're entitled. Um, I don't want them to feel threatened. Um, this is my take uh, when it comes to youth soccer and support in this country. We use that again uh, tagline "Pay to Play." We cannot, as a federation, go into any elite club any system right down to a rec center league and tell them that their customers can't pay. Um, it's illegal. These are registered businesses in this country. They have been. Some of them have been for decades. But what we can do is incentivize them with programs that support uh, support them financially to, to, uh, to invest in programs uh, for kids that can't afford to go to these clubs and DAs and ODPs and things like that. So you know, we don't want U.S. Club to feel intimidated by any one person. But because I've been so can- candid about that, you know, again, maybe they're looking at the, the effect of the money uh, of some of what I talk about that might affect their bottom line rather than the development process. And that's the problem we have from day one. It's all about the money. How about this? Let's not think about the money because we have $100 million plus surplus. We've done a good job promoting the game. We're great business people in this country, uh, but are we great soccer people? So let's go full circle and, and worry about the development now because the money is not the issue. And, of course, the other big organization uh, in the, the relatively new big organization in U.S. youth soccer is the Development Academy. Mm-hmm. And uh, what – what are your thoughts on how that stands now? I mean, is it sort of a good news, bad news? Good news, the professional clubs are getting involved in um, most of them offering 
uh, free, you know, most of them not requiring payment to play. Um, right. But perhaps the bad news is they're off in their own little silo, and there's some clubs right. in it that aren't as competitive as others. Uh, how do you see that? Well, this is how I see it. Um, we're all in the same airspace, but we don't fly in the same pattern when it comes to youth soccer development in this country. Um, as a former club owner and a premier club owner, the worst feeling I had was developing a child uh, within their family structure for years, and then all of a sudden another organization comes in, sells them the Kool-Aid of the month or the flavor of the month, and you lose that player. And all you have at the end of the day is maybe some bragging rights that they went to an academy of an MLS team um, or a DA academy. And you're left wondering what you did wrong as a club owner to lose that child to begin with. Um, so, number one, I don't like the poaching of players within the system. Um, number two, um, like I said before, uh, we all have our claim to this sport as as academies, as instructors, as coaches, um, as leaders. Um, I think we just need to get in the room, look each other in the eye, not feel intimidated by one or the other, and decide on a defined process. So once you lose, I, and I don't want to use the term lose, but once your child or your player decides to move on to a different level, it should be the betterment for the child and the families there need to be a part of a system uh, that's going to move it towards a national team process. Because at the end of the day, that's what this all is for, is, right? Because everybody wants to talk about the national team's uh, uh, qualification levels in, in our country. So it supports that. Um, so, you know, here we are. Um, you know, can we blame ourselves for not qualifying um, in, in these ranks, um, you know, for, for our World Cup? So we need to fly in the same uh, pattern uh, without stepping on each other's toes. Just, there's no question about it. And, uh, you know, that's one of my first top priorities is to get these clubs together to look each other in the eye and, hey, let's work on a, let's work on a program together that we decide on together as a group. Let's just not fly off and say that we're going to do it our way and the heck with the rest of the, uh, the rest of the soccer community. Okay. So, and so that's, and that's something that, I think a lot of candidates seem to be in line with is, is that, you know, look, we need to, we need to get more discussion. In fact, the, the irony is that, um, I think under the current administration, U.S. soccer, uh, brought together some of these groups against U.S. soccer, essentially. I mean, the, the youth soccer, right, right. uh, technical council, um, I, which I wrote about when it was formed, um, was in response to the, player development initiatives and the mandates that were being handed down, some of which I I, I can tell you as um, the guy who ends up being the sounding board for a lot of venting of soccer parents in my region <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. they know what I do for a living, uh, the birth year mandate did not go over well. It well, really they're, confu- I, yeah. they're confused. Yeah. The American soccer parent is confused right now because they don't know which path to go on. Because right. everybody's talking talking about what path they want their child to go on. But at the end of the day, this is where it's at, right? So this is in my mind and in my heart. Um, there is no federation. There is no World Cup team. We have fancy stadiums. We have state-of-the-art training. We've developed our curriculum. We have a coaching and education pro- uh, program. We have curriculum. We have all these tools in the toolbox, but yet all of us, can't really say how we should develop our our players uh, because everybody wants to make claim that they're developing them the right way. Well, we, we, it's all true. Um, youth soccer's not broken, just like I said about the women's sport. Um, youth soccer's not broken in this country. It, we need to define a process for the development past the club, past the DA, and past the rec center league that that everybody agrees upon uh, because that's where it's all flow. That's where the flow chart is pushing us now. Anyway, listen, um, the 35 year old parent right now um, that has a child to kick in the ball for the first time, played division one soccer, played professional soccer, uh, has um, a licensed coaching badges. Um, 
I mean, we need to keep up with, with those folks, uh, both technically and, and uh, in technology and both in, the, in our systems that we create to, to make sure that their kids are in a flow chart that's proper, transparent, and not confusing. And you, you did mention coaching in there, and mm-hmm. coaching education has been an issue in this campaign. And uh, in that area, in that realm, and of course you have experience mm-hmm. in this too. Um, I do. So, yeah, what can U.S. soccer be doing better with coaching? Well, number one, we don't. Ha- I don't think we should have to remortgage our house to get a B license in this country. Um, right. <laughs> you know, number one, <laughs> number one, and uh, number two. Um, the, the 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 process of uh, getting accepted into a B or an A license course, um, I think we should revisit the um, the the, uh, the qualification level uh, because let's face it, you're tapping into some skills that uh, I've won national championships as a coach, uh, you know. And does our technical does our technical department make it easy for coaches in this country to? Uh, to become coaches, but let's define a coach. Um, I mean, a coach is, is is somebody who can teach soccer, but leaders, in my mind, that can take a coaching skill. Uh, but leaders develop champions, and they develop lives. They develop people. So maybe that's half the problem of our men's national team coaching uh, 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 way of doing business. And we'll talk about Klinsman and obviously Rena in another sector, uh, probably months from now again. But but do we have coaches, uh, a coaching um, philosophy from the federation on down that wants to create leaders as well? Um, but we need to open it up to make it easier for some of these people uh, to come through our system and get their licenses uh, and open up the floodgates uh, to insert more coaching in our sector. There's no question about it. You mentioned Reina, and uh, coincidentally, I was there when Reina – was at the NSCAA convention and unveiled uh, the curriculum. Uh, it was mm-hmm. 2011. I was writing about for um, writing about for ESPN. And the funny thing was, I was dashing between that and the MLS draft, and so I went over. I, I watched Claudio unveil it, and then went over and to the draft and uh, saw Bruce Arena and said, uh, "Bruce, I just saw uh, Claudio unveil the curriculum," and he says, "Claudio, who?" And mm-hmm. I go, yeah, uh, the the guy who played for you at Virginia in the national team that that that's that's Bruce. Bruce always likes to try to make a journalist feel uh, a little bit <laughs> queasy. <That's> okay, <laughs> but, he, but it's, okay. it's great though. It's great because you know I can have conversations with Bruce uh, where I think, man, he's really uh, wow, that was really difficult. And then I go back and listen to it, and every quote is fantastic. Uh, where right, right. you know some people are, can be really polite but not say anything. Bruce always says mm-hmm. something, <laughs> whether you dis- whether you agree with it or not. He says something. Um, That's right. But but in any case, I mean the um, the coaches in the room were a little skeptical because uh, Claudio was uh, concerned with what he called over dribbling, and at that point we were all thinking we need to be teaching dribbling. And two things I noticed about your curriculum: one is that it has pretty much disappeared. I mean, you don't. There's no talk about it anymore. I don't. Uh, I, when I went through um, my own licensing, and I got halfway through the D, I couldn't finish the D for reasons that would take a while, but are uh, not my instructor's fault, not the state's fault, but very much the way it was set up. And mm-hmm. then um, all, the other thing I noticed was that they developed, they they split into several components. They said, I think physical, tactical, technical, and psychosocial. Mm-hmm. Which hits at the leadership thing uh, that that you mentioned, and I found that the the last part of that wasn't developed at all, um, and that that seems important to me. I, I when I was talking with Eric Winalda, uh last week, and we talked about why I didn't play high school soccer, it was because I didn't like the kids, mm-hmm. um, and so we don't we don't really talk about such things. So uh, where do you see the that curriculum now, it's because um, yeah, it does appear that it's very quietly been phased out. Well, I mean, you know, tactically, physic. You know, I think you left out the, the term physic physicality. I mean, but tactically, mm-hmm. mentally, 
Um, all those things that are inserted in our curriculum um, are there for a reason, but maybe we shouldn't make uh, the tactical part of it the main focus on number one. Maybe we should make the mentality part of it number one first. What's our mental approach to the sport? What's our mental approach to the game? Maybe we should make that curriculum in part of what the president uh, of this candidacy, who's running for the president of the United States Soccer Federation, uh, fall under the same curri curriculum. What's his or she? What's his or her mentality before we even approach the technical part of the federation? So all of these things that we're talking about from a development standpoint should be the same insertion we have uh, in the po in the political side of the game. But you are right. Um, uh, we have gaps in the curriculum, uh, and we need to address it. Um, listen, we say high, high school soccer. Uh, I've hit a nerve system because I support high school soccer. You know, everybody mm -hmm. says it's just a recreational league, um, but wait a minute. The high school player that is now playing for his or her town used to be in some of the elite clubs that is battling for bragging rights now. So these are the same kids. So why, why, are they, why are they a great player when they played for an academy or they played for an elite club? Now they're not so good because they're playing high school soccer. Don't, that's contradicting our, our whole development process. So, listen, high school soccer is near and dear to my heart. So isn't uh, NCAA soccer. These are all, listen, all, all playing levels of soccer in this country need inclusion. We can't say, oh, in order for us to win a World Cup, kids shouldn't be playing high school soccer. That is wrong. And uh, because there's some very decorated coaching, curriculum, and uh, in both in college soccer and high school soccer, and we have to remember one thing. These kids came from playing in academies, in elite clubs when they were young. Um, so why, why are we changing our perspective of, of them now? Right, it's a point that I've made a um, few times. It says when you know when you play, you know, at, at some point you do need to start playing to win and start playing to represent your team. And the way we set the academy now, it's really you're playing not so much for your teammates, but for, you're playing for a scout who right. may be the only person in the stands. You know, aside from right. a few parents who maybe and so. Um, so yeah, I kind of wonder. I mean, we talk about the mentality of U.S. players right. uh, a lot, and and yeah, when you when you're in an intense high school soccer game with your crosstown rival, and mm -hmm. I, I covered a lot of those as as a journalist, and one of the best, <laughs> one of the most entertaining games I ever saw was five three mm -hmm. overtime game <laughs> in uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, between two of the teams there, and there were a few hundred people there. They got into it. it was fantastic. So. Right. Um, I remember, you know, I, I won a championship as a high school player um, back in the day, mm -hmm. um, and I remember sitting down with my high school coach who, who showed interest in my life and showed interest in the sport that I love. And, and uh, you know, th there you go. My coach looked me in the eye and said, Paul, what can I do to help you if you want to aspire past high school to be a player in this sport, both college or professionally? And those opportunities came because of my high school coach. Because back in the late 70s, there was no academies, there was no elite systems, there was no anything. It was a letter from your high school coach to say, listen, I have a player for you. We can't mm -hmm. ignore those times. We can't ignore those times, and we should learn from those times and insert those same mentality uh, tactics to our organization that we speak of today. And now, have you heard pushback from people about... Um about high school soccer, of course, I should point out that, you know, I yeah, was absolutely. at that You've heard pushback on high school? Yeah, well, it's not pushback from – I haven't heard pushback from a direct high school, but I've heard pushback on the opinion of um, the high school soccer player isn't the player that we need to be focusing on to win a World Cup. So it only comes from an ability of a player uh, from – you know, maybe some elite coaches. My Facebook page has turned into a nothing but uh, an opinion status of, uh, and, and to my, not to my fault, I mean, I, I post things on there and I ask direct questions to the American soccer community. What do you think about this? And it's amazing some of that feedback. I mean, but high school soccer blows up the page 
of everybody's mm-hmm. opinion about high school soccer that should not be included in the technical development of uh, and the coaches to go along with it uh, should not be p- part of the, uh, the federation's process to develop players. And so, yeah, and so you you've had this discussion forum on Facebook, and of course, then Twitter is a giant discussion forum, and sometimes very messy. In fact, I spent last night because I wanted to verify something I saw in the story. I spent last night looking at Neil Gulati's mentions and. Whatever you think of the jobs Neil Gulati has done as president, the stuff that people say to him on Twitter it is beyond the pale. I mean, it is. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we, we all yeah. have our opinions, and I've had my own. But you know, there's a professional scale that we must follow. And, and um, you know, let's face it. Let's give credit where credit's due. Sanal has done a good job managing the money of soccer and managing the relationships that affect the money of soccer. Uh, no question about it. And that's the difference between some of the new candidates that are coming in now and some of the opinions thereof. But, you know, credit what credit is due, but it's time it's time for a changing of the guards. And um, I think the best decision he made last, last night or the day before was to not run. But then again, you know, then it brings in some more of that money trail protection or the castle walls and the deep sandbox that possibly he's been involved with uh, to bring in the president and the CEO of some as as a candidate or as a changing of the guard shift to that to that attention span. So, you know, again, uh, you know, that that's a whole nother subject. Um, but um congratulations to Kathy coming in and like I said, let's let's bring ten more into the party. I just find it odd that it's five days before a nomination process is over, uh, and all of a sudden this confidence level that she's gonna she's gonna make it through. So to wrap up and um and we've talked some about the positives and negatives of this. I think I used the word dartboard at one point. Um, <laughs> but has, but would I? I have to say I've been impressed with the level of discussion in in, uh, in the candidate forums, in uh, all the discussions I've seen. It's it seems like the opposite of a um, of a race for the White House or the State House. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. is that you know all you hear there are attack ads and. Right. Um, and also, there have been interesting exchanges of ideas here. Has this been a rewarding process for you to this point? There's no question about it's been a rewarding process. It's also been an educational process because um, I'm confused as much as the American soccer community has been confused about the election process itself. I mean, two hours before I was doing a major forum out and got soccer in Florida, I was told by a second party that there was a rescinding process that uh, that they just instituted for the purpose of what and whom. Um, so, you know, it's one of those, uh, you know, they're changing the rules as we go a little bit without a professional acknowledgement to the other candidates. I mean, I never got a letter from, from the Federation saying they were doing this until I requested it, uh, saying, hey, is this true? Um, so, you know, it's, it's rewarding. Um, my soccer life has been... Uh, Satisfied, uh, win, lose, or draw in this campaign. My soccer life is uh, is not over. Um, you know, I still uh, are in the grassroots trenches, and um, like I said, I um, uh, I will endorse and move on in support of another candidate um, if I don't feel that um, I uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna win this thing. And I think that's professional, and I think it shows the American soccer community that I'm concerned more about the development of the sport rather than my own personal interest. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. And thanks very much uh, for for talking with me today. And uh, whatever the election brings, good luck in the future. Thank you, sir. I'm I'm honored and humbled. And um, again, it's Christmas time. Soccer's a gift. Let's unwrap it. <laughs> All right. Great. Thanks very much. What I tell you? Pretty thoughtful interview, isn't he? A lot of good ideas. A lot of good ideas being tossed around this election. Next week, I'll either have another candidate interview or maybe we'll talk about something else. Hey, maybe we'll talk about MLS Cup. That's this weekend. Go watch some soccer. Enjoy. <laughs>